you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to your movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast this is be real i'm chance solemn pfeiffer here uh debuting a new format for the show that we're calling guests choice i guess in the beginning here um and our our first guest is very very generous to to join us uh he's a, a writer and film programmer out of portland one of the founders of uh, banana stand media and he curated uh clinton street theater's uh, entire october um horror movie lineup it's it's aaron coulter thanks for being on the show aaron Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about horror movies. Yeah, same. Um, so the idea behind <laughs> guest choice, which I already regret, like attempting to brand <laughs> that, what this is going to be called, um, is essentially that uh, we'd start out with with one movie and I'd solicit someone else to pick one that matches it um, via theme or director or actor or whatnot. Not dissimilar from how we do trios on the show normally. Um so I basically just looked at the lineup you'd curated at Clinton, which is um, awesome and uh, tasteful. And even when they're distasteful, as, as good horror movies should be. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And uh, The Hunger jumped out because um, it's Tony Scott's first movie and I'd never seen it. And then we decided to pair it with Vampire's Kiss, the iconic cult Nick Cage film. Uh, and ended up with a pair of vampire movies uh, from the 80s that really is set in New York that um, I think treat uh, vampirism in sort of odd kind of sideways ways. I don't know. What do you what do you make of this pairing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I hadn't seen The Hunger maybe until like two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And... I love it. I just think it's a great film. Um, I unironically love Tony Scott, like enemy of the state. I still think is phenomenal. It's Uh, very entertaining movie. Will Smith, like, come on. And of course, Top Gun, like he created one of the most successful movies in American film history. So, and yeah, I guess if you're as far as like the, the zeitgeist that these movies exist in, if you're in New York in the eighties and everyone's glammed up and, cocaine skinny vampires can't be and and up all night of course vampires aren't that far away from mind (laughs) i don't know um yeah i was looking up you know tony scott's history and he had done a lot of commercials right and then he wanted to do interview with the vampire yeah he wanted to adapt the Anne rice novel that eventually didn't come out for like another 15 years right correct but mgm gave him the hunger instead and it was not a critical or commercial success. And so he ended up going back to being a, a commercial director <laughs> uh, because it bombed so hard, um, which I think is sad, but like a lot of great Hollywood stories, he then made a sob commercial where like a car is compared to a fighter jet and mm-hmm. Jerry Bruckenheimer saw that and wanted him to direct Top Gun <laughs> because he saw, he saw he made a car commercial with, a uh, fighter plane <laughs> where he made a car look like a I mean he's one of the great uh Hollywood practitioners of making things sleek and cool. He did it for 30 years. Yeah, it was, it was interesting cuz he was I think he's from the UK, right? And so yep. he's such an American filmmaker in my mind despite yeah. not being an American. <laughs> so to get us rolling, The Hunger 1983 as we said Tony Scott's uh, feature debut, he had, as you said, he came from uh, commercial directing in the UK. I think he'd adapted a Henry James story for TV. Um, Weird to think that he had this start in uh, mainstream filmmaking that was like very literary. Um, That's not how I think of him, but this this is based on a contemporary novel. Um, The IMDb synopsis, which is is a tradition to read on the show, um, because it helps people get a hold of the movie. And sometimes they're stupid. A love triangle develops between a beautiful yet dangerous vampire, her cellist companion, 
and a gerontologist. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. Do you think when David Bowie signed on to this movie, he thought... The cellist companion. That's how I look at this part. (laughs) You know, not to give any spoilers, but there's not that love triangle scene that you're hoping for. And I had seen this movie before, but when I rewatched it at the end, I was like, oh, wait, there's not this great David Bowie threesome scene that I just pictured in my mind. There's no real overlap between. No. Yeah. The triangle um, does not connect really in any way. Because yeah. David Bowie and Susan Saranda don't have a no, don't have a hookup either. So, yeah, and I think there there's like a certain kind of '80s vanity that they're both that they're both playing with in the the Peter Lowe character, and then just like the notion and the hunger of wanting really badly to. If there's any good part of a vampire's promise, it's the it's the youth, right? And for that to even vampires will let you down in the end, apparently. Yeah, although, I mean, in The Hunger, Tony Scott makes it seem really cool. You know, the intro of Bella Lugosi's dead. And like right. you said, they're all like super thin. You know, I think between the three main actors, they're all in their late 30s or maybe, you know, just approaching 40, but still looking absolutely fabulous. Sure. Um, even though The Hunger is an extremely sad movie when you think about it. Um mm-hmm. And it wasn't supposed to end, I guess, the way it, it did. Right. We can get, maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it so, still seems really cool. Like, I still, even though I know what happens um, to you in The Hunger, <laughs> like, I would still maybe do it. Like, oh, you yeah? still get, like, two or three hundred years of... Yeah. Solid 200. Yeah. And how long do you think it takes to decompose? Now, that's another question. Um, like is that another two or three hundred years or do you think like 50 i'm no i myself am not a gerontologist especially (laughs) like a supernatural gerontologist i could possibly say um one of the things that i find interesting is that we, we picked two movies that if you take away like the central creative driving force of each of them being Tony Scott and Nicolas Cage. Like, I don't really know what these movies are. Like if someone just handed you the script for the hunger, what, what, like, what would that be like? Would that make any sense? You know, I think Tony Scott is, he's great. He's a great director for this film. Love the film. I almost feel like this, the actors in this movie though, kind of sell it. Like if you were Mm -hmm. to say like, you know, you've got David Bowie, who was extremely famous by then. I think Susan Sarandon was probably up and coming at that point. And obviously, like, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name, even though I looked it up for this podcast. Catherine Deneuve. Catherine Deneuve. Yeah. You know, you put those three people in any movie and you would think, especially in the 80s, like solid gold at the box office. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, apparently not apparently not the case but yeah you're right um definitely the hunger has has more to work with in terms of in terms of three great actors um so it got criticized a whole bunch at the time for being kind of style over substance but watching it like 35 years later um the style's kind of unmatched like as you basically already did a nice job of summing up like what it's like to just see the the shadowing of of that house and it's kind of endless like you go into the back of it and not only are you around the kind of relics of ancient Egypt and ancient Rome it feels like you're you know if you go into one room you sort of walk into um 
a flashback of uh, is it Miriam um, and John? Miriam and John's like two hundred or his two hundred years, her two thousand. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are moments in the movie uh, where I'm not even sure on like an intellectual level that I like care about what's happening, but I'm just like absolutely enthralled by the way it's shot. But I don't know if that's something that like critics in the moment, I mean, as a working film critic, I can think of movies where I would be like, ah, I was enthralled. So what? Um, but in retrospect, like, what do you want? I actually love the story. Maybe I should read the contemporary novel. Um, but there's a scene in the movie when Miriam is carrying John up to like the attic. Yeah. And it's really quiet. I had to rewind like two or three times and like blast the audio to hear what she was saying. Um, but she has this really whispery poetic kind of like, you will become like rotting wood and feel forever or something like that. Oh, wow. And, I did not catch that. Oh, it's so good. And it's, you know, very brief. And the idea of, yeah, you get to live forever, but yeah. your body keeps dying. Which she and clearly so, knows of all her partners. Right. And like the person that you loved and were obsessed with for hundreds and hundreds of years um, is going to stuff you in a box where you will continue to decompose and feel it at the molecular level for like hundreds of more years while she takes a new lover is fucking dark right. <laughs> for even a vampire movie. Um, so yeah, when I, I read like the Ebert review, I thought was like way off and usually, you know, it's Roger Ebert. Right. Sure. Um, but yeah, I was like, I don't, there's a lot of substance there. Um, right. So if it's a little hokey with the monkeys and stuff like that, or the baboons, um, they should have rewound it in his press screening <laughs> so we could hear the rotting yeah. wood part. Yeah. I think I read um, that Tony Scott never read any reviews of his films after The Hunger because he was just so, you know, oh, put man. out by it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, and you talked about the the Bauhaus song at the beginning. It has, there's just it's just like propulsive for a story that's like not like the story itself is not propulsive, but the filmmaking is like when, when you go from the, that opening club scene where they're kind of taking their victims that you, I guess you gather that's like kind of their average Friday night to the, the monkey at Susan Sarandon's lab, like dismembering that person, which like I could not tell what was going on until they <laughs> explained it later. But like, and then they're in the shower. Um, you get some, some David Bowie backside, um, some work there. And, uh, but it really, it feels like a... Butt double. You think so? I don't know. Probably. You never see the face and the ass at the same time, which suggests to me butt double. Because if you were going to flaunt it, like, at least for me, and I used to be a nude model in college for art classes. There you you go. want the whole, you want the whole, you know, frame. Hmm. I, I don't like this. This is a very cynical take. I want to believe that that it's Dave. Um, but... Um, yeah, it just feels like another, like the second track of a great album is starting or something. Um, even if I, yeah, the the, the story had, hadn't quite hadn't quite dawned on me at that point. Um, I think David Bowie said the same thing in an interview that he thought like the first twenty minutes of The Hunger were, yeah, great and driving, entrancing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he tried to stay away from like openly criticizing the film after it had such a poor opening, and so he was trying to find parts of it to be sure. <laughs> nice and nice man. Yeah. <laughs> if you were a audience a theater goer in in 1983, I it makes you wait a long time to be like is, is this a vampire movie? Are, are we sure they're vampires and they are, but you got to wait. Um Aaron, what are you generally a fan of David Bowie's acting? You know, it is a, a shame for me to admit this, but I've never seen, um, was it The Man Who Fell to Earth? The Nicholas Rogue movie, yeah. I think that was his first one. I don't have a ton of, like, David Bowie acting. Labyrinth? I guess, yeah, Labyrinth. I, I always forget about that. Is that acting? 
that's more like costume and like <laughs> prop right like i think more just great. kind of being in front of the camera go ahead sorry yeah i think he's great in the hunger i think he portrays a lot of sadness and melancholy um it's measured you know unlike nicholas cage's right performance in vampire kiss um i i assume he wears all the makeup um where he's aging yeah i think so um which is fantastic like i there's a lot of actors who when they put on a lot of like prop and like makeup and stuff like that um i don't know get kind of hokey or weird but i thought he it seemed like he treated the role really seriously as an actor and not just uh i'm david bowie getting to be in another movie his old man voice is really good too i mean it's not surprising that he's able to do an effective masquerade with his voice but um i don't really know how you do that to really speak slower and raspier and do it over the course of like one scene that scene in the where he's waiting for susan sarandon so we should say if 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 people don't know um susan sarandon works in a lab where they're trying to treat a rare disease where children basically age and die between the ages of like five and 16. Um, so sort of the, the reversed mirror image of the vampiric curse. And so when they explain, I think as in as much time as you just did in the film, they like, like, this is why and moving on. (laughs) In my mind, that's the film's only exposition. The rest of it is, Hardly expository at all. Um, so that's why David Bowie goes to goes to this lab to forge this non-love triangle angle. Um, and Susan Sarandon kind of blows him off because there's this hint of like people showing up and being like, can you make me young again? And she's like, yeah, 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 go wait in the room. And, and over the course of, uh, I, I guess, maybe five minutes of, of, of screen time, but it's supposed to be like four or five hours, um, we see his hair fall out and his makeup change like several times. It's really good makeup work. I think it's Dick Smith who um, won, you know, he, basically they created the Academy Award for makeup for him. Um, uh, he did like The Exorcist and Brando's Jaw and The Godfather. Um, oh, really? That's yeah. that's great. Is the, the makeup's amazing. Um, but yeah, Bowie acts the hell out of it. Um, and it is sad. What do you think of Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve's chemistry. Oh, it's wonderful, right? Like yeah. Susan Sarandon is just fantastic in this movie. Um, obviously, you know, there's the whole pioneering of like a bisexual character in horror, I guess in like a, mod, a, a big budget horror movie. Um there's a reason why it's become a, a cult classic. I think. Um, I think Roger Ebert even <laughs> set out me to keep going back to his review, yeah. um, but he was a pervert, and so, <laughs> you know, he was like, "Oh, the scene between them was great," and it's like, "Yeah, of course." Um, and it debuted at Cannes, yeah, we all which think is it's great. Yeah, Cannes is famous for like, oh, if 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 you have lesbians in your movie, you get nominated for best picture. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, um, but yeah, they're they're terrific and. Unlike David Bowie, who, I don't know if I'm using the word simp correctly, but he's really kind of like, he's really like crawling on his hands and knees um, to like, please Miriam and stay around her. And like Susan Sarandon's character without giving away the ending, you know, is uh, not necessarily fearless, but like composed and doesn't really back down and is her own, her own person and character. You're frightened. You're damn right I'm frightened. It's natural. You don't know what's happening to you, but there's nothing to be frightened of. As long as you put your face in me, give me time, trust me. Trust you. I did trust you, and look what happened. It's a bruise. It will fade. I know it's a bruise. Look, I'm going to ask you one more time. What have you done to me? I've given you something you never dare dream of. What? Everlasting life. Well, I know now I wouldn't have been so blood in your veins is mine. Yours. Yes. I kind of gather that 
Susan Sarandon's character realizes that she'll be at the the whim of this thing she's tasted, which is, you know, the ecstasy of blood for the rest of her life. And I, I did feel it's an interesting choice that this movie foregoes the the traditional neck bite to do like more of a intravenous kind of arm uh, wound. Um, and part of, I think, I guess we, we'll have to do a spoiler warning at some point. Part of the choice that she seems to make at the end is um, like a, a, a life completely dependent on this monstrous addiction is, is perhaps not the life that, um, you know, is worth not worth living um yeah so that was that was just kind of my 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 feeling on that one yeah i could totally see that i mean on one hand the the necklaces they wear do remind me of what i assumed like a cocaine necklace would be with like a little spoon at the end of it right but then talking about like the intravenous addiction um there is i don't know if it's like an old drug users warning but like if you shoot up heroin like for the first time a lot of people like that's it right yeah after you taste that it's like you're never going to get as good of a high let's talk about the ending folks if you don't want the the end of 1983's the hunger spoiled for you uh skip ahead five minutes um so it's a studio note that gives us Susan Sarandon standing on that balcony in London at the end, because I've, as I've already sort of indelicately implied, she she takes her own life with the uh, the Egyptian, not Coke, but dagger <laughs> necklace. I think that was a good read on your part, um, and and kills herself with it because she's just like I, I'm not gonna uh, mangle people for two hundred years. Um, which I think is um, a bold choice, like an anti-mainstream uh, movie kind of choice. Um, yeah, and she, I mean, right before that scene, she kills her husband. Right. And so her first victim yeah. from this hunger uh, is... See the damage it can do. Yeah, is her husband. And so, I, you know, on some regard, I almost don't know if it's, I don't want to, kill and eat people for another 200 years because she's already killed ostensibly the most important person in her life ostensibly (laughs) yeah right or is it she just doesn't want to be under the power of miriam right and i guess that kind of answers it because uh spoiler at the end she has kind of her own vampiric harem in right. Rome, I think is, is, oh, is, is it that Rome? where she's. Li- I couldn't I they tell were where. Down on uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in London. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Would you rather be a vampire in Rome or London, Aaron? You know, I've never been to Europe, but either sound great. <laughs> either one's a good place to start. I've <laughs> never <Yeah>. been. <laughs> Might as yeah. well spend two hundred years in either. Um, Someplace old with a lot of catacombs and basements for oh. sure. Yes. Like West Coast scene. vampires. I think we've all seen the Lost Boys. It's not that great, right? You just you're just like on interstates the whole time. Yeah, you get a sexy sax man. That's about it. Who needs that? I think it's a braver ending not to include that. I think I would agree with Susan Sarandon that, uh, like most studio mandated endings, like this one doesn't help the movie. But I don't think it really ruins it either. Um, like the movie's just, it's, it's so, uh, ambiguous and indirect in terms of like what the characters motivations and, and fates and what the rules of the movie really are. It's not the kind of thing where it's like, oh, this twist at the end of a Christopher Nolan or M. Night Shyamalan movie, like destroys the logic of the movie. Cause this is not a movie that is, um, really concerned with logic. It's concerned with, uh, uh, uh deep emotions and the the manifestation of those emotions through people like crumbling and decaying in uh, perfume commercial lighting. Oh yeah. I mean, I kind of forgot about the ending, honestly. So when I rewatched, I was like, Oh yeah, she ends up traveling and has her own thing, which I guess was because the studio thought this is going to be a huge success. And so we're going to make sequels and good Lord. How would that even work? You know, 
I guess Susan Sarandon is in the sequel. And then who, what other iconic sexy rocker do you get to play yeah. her opposite in the sequel? I don't know. Some pale imitation. Like Billy Idol is in A Hunger too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something like that. Aaron, would you mind rating The Hunger on our on our rating scale? Can I explain it to you if you don't know real quick? Absolutely. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Good, good for me, for sure. Like, this is a movie, I'm not going to say I'm going to watch it every year, mm-hmm. but, like, probably every other, every two or three years. Like, it's just good. I, I like it. I like being in that dark 1980s new york vampire beautiful people yeah even though it's this unspeakable tragedy that befalls you yeah love it yeah love it in the way that i love like some michael mann films you know what i mean oh sure like like manhunter or something like that or like thief i've never seen thief i I feel terrible i know everyone says is that your favorite michael mann film no, but it's 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 a lot like Manhunter, which I love in the sense of like it's it's kind of like what the hell's going on with this guy? But he's just like surrounded by a vibe. You're like, vibe's <laughs> great. I have a friend who like swears by the um, by Miami Vice, which I also haven't seen, but he's like, I absolutely love that film. That's never been. That's like a real like internet reclamation project. Um, yeah. I gather. Uh, Miami Vice is, I've never quite gotten that one, but we'll have to get get your friend on here and and have him testify <laughs> to it. Um, the hunger is probably good bad for me. Um, it's not a, I, it's not like a ton of a ton of fun, but it is um, it is entrancing if it, it's a good um, if you're looking for like a change of pace. It is sort of like the opposite horror movie experience of like a campy slasher if you're trying to program your kind of your halloween horror watches like this is one where like turn out the lights and uh just like get whisked away i don't think there's any part of the movie that's really like um frightening or scary or it will make your heart leap into your into your up in your chest um no no not really yeah it's not even that gory honestly no. i mean compared by a lot of horror movie standards yeah right so um yeah it's really cool kind of Counterprogramming. Good on you for programming it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I love that film, um, and I love movies that take the vampire myth and flip it a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, if you love um, different takes on vampires, um, you know, Chronos, I think is another one that I would highly recommend. Sweet. Um, not to jump ahead, but while I'm thinking of it, um, talking about other vampire movies this one also takes place in new york it's 1990 so maybe it doesn't quite count um but there's a movie called death by temptation def by temptation um tell us about it a very indie budget um directed written produced and starring um a guy named james bond the third okay um um (laughs) yep uh probably a chosen name i would assume um but it i think the most famous person in it at least at the time was kadeem hardison who was from uh that show a different world right yeah yeah Uh, and i think samuel jackson has a a cameo in it as well um 
the same way that Willem Dafoe has a cameo in The Hunger. Right. Uh, and Spike Lee player Bill Nunn is in it. Yeah, yeah. It's just a well-made, independent um, vampire movie set in New York. Um, it's got a lot of religious undertones. The female vampire in that is kind of more like a succubus hmm. type character who you know lures men away from the bar and stuff like that. Um, I think American Genre Film Archive just released like a 4k restoration of that movie um which is great so good rack good rack yeah um at this point if you're not playing with the with the vampire movie form like what are you doing we've we've had a uh, hundred years of them going all the way back to nosferatu nick cage's his guiding light in the film we're about to talk about uh 1989's uh, vampire's kiss uh, Aaron, had you seen this movie before? I did. So there was uh, a theater here in Portland that did a Nicolas Cage kind of festival over the course of a week, a couple of years ago. And I had seen all the memes uh, based on this movie of Nicolas Cage just being outrageous. Right. And I got to say, Vampire's Kiss, I watched it um, at home with my girlfriend and we both had a great time. But if you have the opportunity, you have to see this movie in an audience. It's just so over the top. You, I mean, at five, six friends, even if you can get together, I know sometimes getting to the theater these days is a little dicey, but convince your local theater to screen <laughs> Vampire's Kiss. Honestly, it is so great. Uh, in a big crowd and that was the first time I saw it and I think that's why I love it so much still that's smart I I previewed the Nick Cage showcase you're talking about and that was the first time I had watched it um and uh at home yeah you're still laughing out loud at Nick Cage like once every five minutes but um then sometimes like you're a little lost in uh the mire of this movie, I think. Whereas I think that would fade away if you were at the Hollywood with, with folks, I think. Oh, 100%. Like it's the same. The first time I saw Mandy with Nicholas Cage was at the Clinton street theater. That's one you, and you, that's part of you program that this month too, right? I did. Yeah. Um, and I got, this is a total tangent, but in that film, there's a fake commercial. Um, I think by the director who did too many cooks of a mac and cheese called cheddar goblin. Right. So I have like 130 boxes of this promotional mac and cheese. No way. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast and it's before, I think it's Friday, October 22nd, and you're in Portland, come to the theater and I will give you several boxes of free promotional mac and cheese, whose best by date is coming up very soon. (laughs) Yeah, because this movie came out like, what, three years ago? Yeah. Um, Anyway. Have you you tried any of it? I'm not moving on from this. Have you tried any of this mac and cheese? <laughs> no, fuck no. I'm not going to eat any of that. Are you kidding? No, okay. absolutely not. No. All right. But our <laughs> listeners can and should. if they You want. put it on the shelf. It's a nice uh, commemorative piece of cinema. I don't know. But yeah, uh, there's certain movies. I think Nicolas Cage especially. Nicolas Cage movies need to be seen in a theater. Um, the other thing I programmed this month was Nicolas Cage's Wicker Man. Right. Which yeah. is awful. It's just, that movie. Sucks. It's terrible. Yeah, but he makes so many of vamp. I don't want to spoil how I feel about it. Vampire's Kiss is almost like this, like these, just like YouTube supercut movies, where if you watch the fourteen Nick Cage minutes, might be a better experience than watching the movie. This this movie is more interesting than the Wicker Man remake, though. Oh, one hundred percent. That movie blows. And Nicolas Cage, I think, to this day, talks about this was his favorite film to make. Yeah, because they let him do whatever he wanted, and it's so clear that he had zero direction in this film. How was your weekend? It's all right, you know. There's nothing worth shattering. He was an ordinary guy. Morning, everyone. Morning. Looking for an extraordinary love. I'm Peter Lev. Rachel. I brought this girl up to my place the other night. It started with a kiss. Really hot. A very special kiss. You wanted her very badly. 
Yeah. A kiss that could drive you mad. I hate interrupted love affairs, don't you? Yep, 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 yep. It's affecting his work. There you are! It's a horrible, horrible job. And you have to do it. It's ruining his appetite. My next appointment with you is uh, Tuesday afternoon. I'd like to make it sooner. It's spoiling his sleep. Sooner. And don't think people haven't noticed. Am I getting through to you, Alva? He is so eccentric. My, my. For Peter Lowe. Oh, sooner. That's just love. Love? Love. In the big city. Yeah! Don't laugh. I'm a professional. I don't laugh. Did you look this up, Eric? How old do you think he is at this time? Do you know? I looked it up. I think he's like 25? 23. I was three shocked, shocked how young. young. Oh, man. To have that much. <laughs> and it's a, he's just come off of Moonstruck, so he has all this acclaim. Um, oh, this is post-Moonstruck. Yeah, right afterward. Oh, because he's so great in that. I had not seen Moonstruck until like six months ago. Mm. and He's wonderful. wonderful. Johnny's got a hand. Johnny's got a wife. Like, are you fucking like how? How did he get placed in that movie? And on day one of the set, the director wasn't like, absolutely not. Leave. <laughs> get God out bless, of here. God bless you for breaking the seal on Cage impressions. Now I think we can go full bore if you want. Um, yeah, he somehow manages to like fit into that movie where like this is an example of one of my favorite nick cage talking points is when he'll refer to a performance that he's giving as like german expressionist yeah and it's like but nick this is face off the film is not german expressionist so like how can your performance like be of a hundred year old european art movement but in his mind, it can. And it also explains so much about what you're watching. Like, this is a sort of, um, you know, confused, low-budget, scrapping-for-everything kind of movie. But, like, he is almost hoisting it, like, into some kind of non-existent genre that would come to just be Nick Cage movies. Oh, yeah, because it's not a horror movie, really. Nope. It's not a comedy, because it's too weird. Nope. Um, and they're, they're those mimes. In the film. each other right yeah which is i don't it's know if that's that. like self-referential and that the director i don't know i it feels like nick cage is what if a mime just screamed while yeah. it was performing and that's what nicholas cage is doing in the vampire skits he's being as expressive as he can be with his body to yeah. absurd lengths but he's also doing it not with just the dialogue that he's saying the volume at which he's saying it and the accent at which he's presenting it jesus it's it's wild (laughs) as a performance it is wild yeah um in a weird bit of symmetry so uh robert bierman who directs this movie is another english commercial director who is coming to Hollywood for his first ever... He's like doing the Tony Scott thing six years later. Um, and as we find out, he's he's not Tony Scott. Um, <laughs> but that's also crazy of like, this is... You're dealing with a 23-year-old Nick Cage who's like, I, I am this movie. And then you have like a first-time director going on a, a, a script uh, by Joseph Minion who'd written um, After Hours and had penned this like about his own like depression and 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 failing relationship um which i think i think that more explains like what this movie is about actually let me just let me jump in here um the movie is about a literary agent named peter lowe who is just you know out on the late 80s town um living his best patrick bateman life oh yeah I, can we swear i think i've already sweared on this podcast swore you on may. this podcast yes, yeah um 
Peter Lowe fucks, ladies and gentlemen. People listen to this he podcast. Does. He not, not clear whether he sells any books, but he does fuck. He he fucks all the time, constantly. And I think doesn't one of the opening scenes is like him bragging to his therapist about like, oh, in the morning I don't, you know, I'm already dressed. I can't do like a good Peter Lowe. Um, borderline Stewie. From- <laughs> borderline <laughs> yeah it is and what is that because at one point uh peter Lowe's character says that he moved from new york from philadelphia right <laughs> so is Classic. this nicholas cage's upper crust philadelphian literary accent or it's amazing what yeah to think of how like what this character is supposed to be it's like he was in it would be as though Peter Lowe was like one of the Dead Poets Society boys who was like kicked out of the Dead Poets Society for wanting to work in the publishing industry. Um, but he still has that kind of like affect and apparently like ha- likes poetry. That's what he wants in life is, is, is a woman who likes poetry and, and Wordsworth as much as he does. My podcast partner of, of, of six years, bless his heart, he is a literary agent. I've, I've been in literary agent offices. They don't typically have pictures of Franz Kafka um, <laughs> on their desk. That's not like a big, that's not something you see a lot in that industry. So he cares about art still a little, but he cares more about shacking up. Oh, yeah. Man, I'm, I'm looking this up now. This is post-Raising Arizona, which is even more wild because I yeah. would feel like and I, I guess I didn't look up how Raising Arizona performed or if that helped, I assume, helped put Nick Cage on the map. But to go from Raising Arizona to this seems like a step backward in a sure lot does. of ways. It sure does. Um, but yeah, I guess he he loved, Nicolas Cage loved this role. And he was in the movie Color Out of Space. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh yeah, the Lovecraft. I like that movie. Yeah. And the... Is that Pantos Cosmos? No, is that that was the Mandy director? This is yeah. Colorado Space is Richard Stanley, who was the original Island of Doctor Moreau director. Right. Which you have to do a podcast episode about that disaster at some point. Eventually, yeah, we've discussed it. But yeah, there's that scene towards the end of Colorado Space where Nicolas Cage slips into the character of Peter Lowe for like a couple right. lines. Yeah. And I remember seeing that in the theater too when it came out and it was part of that Nicolas Cage, I think, series. And oh, so yeah. the the audience just like cracked up because it's like, we just watched him do this yesterday. Um, but there were, you know, 25 plus years apart. Still in his repertoire. <laughs> just pulls that card out of his pocket. Right. You think people at parties are like, Nick, Nick, do some Peter Lowe for us. <laughs> So I feel like we uh, <laughs> those myths we were mid synopsis. You're you're incredibly right. He uh, he is, is is very adept at getting women to come back to his apartment. Uh, so adept that the second one, um, played by Jennifer Beals of Flashdance fame, um, bites him on the neck. At which point he believes that he is a vampire. And if, if if something I've said is inaccurate there, it sort of leads me to my next question. Because I, I feel like I've heard people, Aaron, debate um, the reality or lack thereof of this movie. Is he in any way becoming a vampire, in your opinion? Uh, no. No, I don't think so, <laughs> so either. I think he's, he's psychotic. Right. There's some pretty clear indicators with like his reflection in the mirror and the gun being full of blanks. There's like a lot of stuff where it's just like, you're not a vampire, bro. At the end, he's talking, you know, to a wall that he thinks is a psychiatrist. Like I thought, yeah, I thought they made it very clear over several points that he's not actually a vampire. Um, Oh man, though, that, that bathroom scene uh, that you brought up where he runs in and thinks he can't see himself in the mirror but you as an audience are like there's so many reflections right and he's just not believing it it was getting the guy who's in the in the stall is like whatever fucking acting exercise this is please stop oh yeah he even says he's like take it to the lady take it back to the ladies room or something you know very like crusty 1980s um joke would be 
they really should be treating his burgeoning schizophrenia, not this sort of like patrician malaise that he what like why is he in therapy he's just kind of like i I think there's that point where he's like i got horny by seeing a bat and the therapist was like red flag yeah let's try and focus on that i love when he tries to save face though when she's like well you were like had just been with the woman like moments earlier and he's like oh yes 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 the girl that's right of course like yeah got it um did you read have you read that um much as I love Nick, uh, sympathy and empathy to the actors who worked with him over the course of his career, especially like when he didn't like. So he apparently was just like repulsed by Jennifer Beals. Just like she's not this should go. This role should go to my girlfriend, Patricia Arquette, because like she's actually entrancing or whatever. And it's like, yeah, of course you're you're dating her. Yeah. So there's this thing where Nick Cage to like get ready for those love scenes had them like pour yogurt on his bare feet to kind of get in the headspace. This is in a, a ring, a ringer um, story uh, from a couple years ago for the 30th anniversary. Uh, the story I believe is called bad shit. Um, and there's, there's some good details in there about him, uh, you know, being impossible in a way that. Wow. No. All these years later is. So he's, cause I, this is a, probably a very sexist note but i noticed that she's wearing like pasties like that are very visible in the right. scene which if you had Multiple any times. budget at all you would have like reshot or edited out and clearly they didn't have that that budget to do no. so during that he was like this is i can't i can't act i need yogurt poured on my feet because that's how i get down yep okay yeah this is the kind of movie where like i this is like the third time i had watched it and it's another movie where I, I, like you were saying with The Hunger, completely forget like what happens at the end where he's like hallucinating and in this hallucination, his therapist like hooks him up with the girl of his dreams. Like, you don't have to be a vampire anymore. Sharon here likes Vivaldi. You're fine. Go home. And that's like sort of like a weird resolution for this like screwed up character before you get the actual resolution of the story. Um, but like, I never remember that ending at all any any time i've i've rewatched it um and there is this it's not very stylistically conveyed but like this is sort of like a morass of a movie even though it's kind of sluggish and um you know not that interesting in some scenes where it's like okay back at the apartment flipping stuff over oh we're gonna go ask alva about uh alva where the (laughs) where the file is again all right we can do that um I bet there's a solid 12 minutes of this film that are just like B-roll shots of New York City too. Yes. There's <laughs> there's so much. Um, and like, like I think of kind of a false profundity that like works on me at the beginning where it's like that mournful horn and you're like seeing the skyline and the towers and stuff. Oh, and, like, 100% that like jazz clarinet, you know. Yes. Yeah. And I'm that like, just look lets at you this, know like... you in New York, baby. <laughs> like, yeah. The day is just dawning. Like this is when all the van- like the 80s vampires would start to go to bed. Like I will start to read into this movie like no problem. And then by the middle of it, I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> this is just a, a waste of time. Yeah, it's just like, here's 30 seconds of yellow cabs driving up and down like 7th or 6th or whatever for no reason other than we needed to let the audience know that we're changing scenes. Is there anything not, I want to talk more about Nick's performance. Is there anything outside of his performance like worth discussing? Any more like plot logistics or dimensions you want to comment on? No, and I feel bad because obviously <laughs> there are other actors in this film, yeah, but they are. don't matter, like, at all. David Hyde Pierce and John Michael Higgins are in this movie, but to your point, they don't matter at all. They're just, like, in a bar being as vapid as, as yeah. low is. I remember pausing the movie to, to tell my girl, I'm like, that's that's Niles Crane. Frazier's brother. And he has, like, a not even a full line that's drowned out by, like, bar chatter. Yeah. Um, he's got this amazing beard he somehow I bet was like 26 in that uh, movie but looks like 50 for some yep. reason I really feel bad um, for Alva played by Maria Conchito Alonso um, it's a sympathetic performance because it seemed it's also one of those you know you run across these performances sometimes when like the central actor is going very method where like 
your sympathy for like the character that he's tormenting like also extends to the actor it's like i don't maria i don't know how this was for you man (laughs) probably not great um the one thing that robert bierman is really good at shooting is i think uh, the blocking on Cage's freakouts is often great. Like he, like the camera moves up and down in these really um, uh, well structured, um, kinetic ways when he stands up to do his ABCs or when he kind of like marches out of the office and jumps up on the desk. Um, like they're really on the same page there visually with how to like accentuate this insane physical performance he's giving. Oh yeah, unlike the David Bowie shower scene, we get like a full frame Nick Cage um, yes. when he's going all out. Um, not to besmirch like Buster Keaton or say it's anywhere that level, but you know what I mean. Like yeah, like you're saying, he gives that um, that wide shot for comedy. Nick's performance, like whether it's kind of like for not or just like transcendent. Um, the physical performance of him being like Max Shrek or Klaus Kinski or one of these like people who've played Nosferatu <laughs> is unbelievable. I don't really know how he does the um, the shoulder hunch where it just seems like he's like in a brace or something or like wearing shoulder pads, but like the rest of his body is still like limber and free to move. Maybe that's just being 23 years old, but it's amazing how he changes posture over the movie. I mean, he must have drawn from Nosferatu and he later produced Shadow the Vampire starring William Defoe. Um, oh, nice. So, yeah, I mean, he, for, I guess for a long time, Nicolas Cage was probably just this like, oh, he's in everything, you know, he needs money. But then when you read interviews with him, and see what he wears in his day-to-day life. Uh-huh. <laughs> he is just an extreme person that yeah. yeah, does not, it's weird, but it doesn't completely shock me to be like, yeah, you know, throw some yogurt on these feet before we do the next scene. Um, and that he probably, you know, watched a ton of classical vampire movies and a lot of other weird stuff to prepare for this role in a way that like no one will probably ever fully appreciate other than him. <laughs> uh, yes, I think that's true. Um, Cause as much as there's a, a fandom and a cult around it, like I think only he knows like really what's up with Peter. I, I do not. Yep. 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 Unless of course it's somehow been misfiled. But misfiled. Yes, Miss Wilde. Sometimes somebody puts a document in the wrong file and then it's misfiled. It makes it much harder to find. Who? Who? What do you mean, who? I don't know who exactly. You don't? No, I don't. Whoever filed it in the first place, but for God's sakes, Peter, I am not telling you one single thing you don't already know. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's all you have to do. Aaron, where does the alphabet recitation rank for you in the pantheon of cage freakouts oh i i don't know top five i remember when we saw it in the theater they had to before the film played they were like okay when we get to the alphabet (laughs) scene he's doing it he's doing it on screen we don't need anyone else in the audience to to help him out um and yeah, if you've not seen the alphabet scene already on YouTube, we'll cut it in right now. <laughs> just, I'd say watch the movie, watch the entire Vampire's Kiss just to see those like 18 seconds. It's so child. He does a really nice job, I think, of portraying Peter Lowe as just like, as so weak. He's just like such a weak person. Um, yeah. What if American Psycho 
you know, was equally insane, but instead of being a powerful Wall Street broker, was just a sad literary agent who thought he became a vampire. Who never, yeah, who wasn't working on any book projects and was just tormenting assistants because past clients wanted to frame a contract from an old story. This movie kind of feels like if Patrick Bateman, like, directed a movie. Like, I think I've already used the word vapid once, but, like, it's so... Like, the movie itself, other than the performance that Nick is giving, is kind of, like, shallow and superficial, and there is, like, this level of, like, who would find this person interesting on any level if he didn't believe he was becoming a vampire? Um, and that's that's sort of, like, the intentionally or not, it kind of synthesizes, like, that late 80s um, attitude. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever see this movie again. Oh, you might be good at this point. I might be good. Like if I, in if a, a bunch theater, of friends you might go back. or in a theater, yeah. I don't think, unlike The Hunger, which I can totally see myself pulling up to watch again in the next five years, unless I'm with in a big crowd and had a few drinks, I don't know if I'll, I need to watch Vampire's Kiss ever again. Right. This one would be for me a a bad good. Like the film itself is floundering and all over the place and has has no idea what it's doing but is imminently watchable because of like you know i guess had like an 18 minute super cut of nick cage just being ah high school (laughs) (laughs) oh man i i kind of feel like it's a bad bad for me okay as much as i love nicholas cage's performance and again it's super fun to see in a theater it's still bad. Yeah. <laughs> like it's still just, it's still bad. It, unlike, um, I don't know, I'm thinking like something like Return of the Living Dead or, uh, you know, other just like bad horror movies that that know they're bad. Right. And embrace that. There's something like borderline pompous about yeah. Nicolas Cage's performance where it's like, it's still just a bad movie. See it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't get as much love out of uh, multiple watches as I do other bad, good horror movies out there. Right. right. Yeah, you're right. There's like a level of self-importance to this one where if Peter Lowe is for sure not a vampire, well then why should we care about his transformation and if he were like a little more Patrick Bateman-esque, it could be more of a comment on like, well, these people are like the vampires of American society. Don't you get it? Blah, 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 blah. But he's just like such, he's not an important person <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. He just abuses every last ounce of the limited power that he does have and then loses his mind and treats people badly and we're out of there. So there's not like a lot more to the movie, even though it takes itself seriously. But it's great. See it. If you've not seen it, I would, if you haven't seen The Hunger or Vampire's Kiss, honestly, watch Vampire's Kiss first. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Um, But it's a worse movie, uh, strangely. Yeah. It can be the, can be the palate cleanser before you really focus up. The palate dirtier maybe i don't know this movie is in no way going to cleanse you (laughs) it's a bad bad metaphor on my part um aaron i think i think we've come to the end uh thank you for doing this it was such a pleasure yeah of course i love talking about horror movies um i think i mentioned this i wrote a little thing in the clinton street newsletter um about you know this month i got to curate and i wasn't a horror movie fan for years I was such a film snob and thought that horror was the lowest genre and blah, blah, blah. Um, but my girlfriend really liked him. And so one month I just decided I'm going to watch a horror movie every day and f- find things that I love about this genre. And it's since become, I guess my favorite genre That's because amazing. it draws like a box around what filmmakers can do. And sometimes filmmakers create sub sub genres that are so specific and weird and it finds an audience somehow or they just completely blow it up 
or they change tropes. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've come to respect horror and love it in a way um, because of all the tropes and all the ways to break them and just the range of great to horrible. <laughs> like, I don't know of any other genre that has such a breadth of truly amazing films, you know, like The Shining to um, Vampire's Kiss, uh, which, you know, maybe uh, those two lead male performances have a lot more in common than mm. I realized mm-hmm. before I started that sentence. I think you got it. Yeah. <laughs> if we we're talking about drama, you'd never want to watch a drama as bad as this movie, but because no. it's in the horror <laughs> realm, yeah. it still has maintained some value. Yeah. Um, well said, sir. Uh, I thank you again for your time. People should check out all the movies that uh, Aaron's curated at, at Clinton Street this month and uh, and Kurosawa films coming up in, in November. Can we shout that out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the, the samurai stuff, but tried to put in some of uh, his other films too that were kind of outside that topic. Cool. Well, uh, watch these two movies if you haven't and uh, happy Halloween, everyone. The little goose is dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled, 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 bled lines. The black box.